from the tippy top. Hey, what's up, marketing cheat coders? Sam and Ed back with you here for another romp through content land. Today we're talking content intelligence, synonymous traffic, security and governance, generative AI, and what happens when you need to go in and overhaul your content engine. Ed, who we got in the pod today? Christine Palavacek. She has over 20 years of experience in B2B marketing, content strategy, and operations. She's previously worked at Serious Decisions and Forrester as VP of Research and Director of Content Strategy and Operations. And she is currently SVP of Product Marketing and Research at Path Factory, which we should mention is an Aprima partner. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. I love when we book operators, heavy hitters that know content ops in and out. So what, what struck out to me in this one is you know, Ed, you talk a lot about the four V's of content. I mean, Christine has her four R's and I, I think they complement each other really nicely. So can you uh, speak to that a bit and let our listeners know what to look out for? They definitely complement one another. When we look at content ops with our customers, as well as inside our own orgs, we look at volume, velocity, variety, and veracity. And when Christine talks about the four R's, she's talking about how you can deliver the right content to the right audience in the right place at the right time. So it's a really good example of our vision for Content 360, how you build solid foundations with the four Vs and then sure it's managed, measured, and monetized via omni-channel impact. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I think we just developed our next co-branded infographic right there. Well, let's get into it and see what the future holds for content intelligence. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Marketing Cheat Codes. My name is Ed Brialt, host of Marketing Cheat Codes. Super excited today to have a marketing maven. Uh, I've known her for a long time. Uh, she's She's got one of the coolest career arcs. We're going to get into it. Uh, Christine, how are you today? I'm great. It's good to see you, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And you just went through a move. I did. I am in Florida now. Mm-hmm. You're, you all, you're always making moves. What, <laughs> what is up with that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just a, an adventurous spirit. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. That's cool. I, I think that's a great mindset to be an adventurer, uh, to have that uh, the spirit of what's new, what's next. Uh, it's such a healthy mindset, especially with uh, you know, technology and change and innovation. Um yeah, you've you've got a really interesting career arc. I want to go through that. Uh, you're currently at Path Factory, um, and but I didn't meet you when you were at Path Factory. The first time I met you, you were at Serious Decisions. Yep. Uh, and then Forrester. Um, but take us back before that. For folks, I, I know your career very well, but for folks who are just meeting you now for the first time in the show, take us a little bit back to the beginning on Christine and okay. uh, and through that journey a little bit. It goes way back at this point, but um, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do that. So, I mean, I start, if you go way, way back, I was doing like PR assistant work and investor relations assistant. And then I got into marketing copywriting at a startup. That's not even on my LinkedIn because it goes so far back. <laughs> I love origin stories like that. There's, <laughs> there's stuff that's there that's, that's not on the surface, right? Yeah, um, for sure. That's, that's cool. And it all builds on each other, right? So, um, I, you know, I would, I have to thank Tech Target where I spent a good seven and a half oh. years. I think I was around employee number forty-five, left around six hundred employees post 
one year after the IPO, after two acquisitions, and it was just an amazing experience. I started there as an assistant editor and left as an executive editor about seven and a half years later and um, learned a lot about running websites, writing content, working with contributors, driving subscription models, sending out newsletters and um, managing a taxonomy for a website. So I feel like that's where I learned a lot of the building blocks and where I learned, I say, that's where I learned content marketing and digital marketing before there were names for those things. Yeah. And you some know? of the things you can't fake, like you literally were doing it. You were, you had your hands on, you were building, you were crafting, you're a creator, a technologist. Totally. I was in the back end of a CMS every day. And, um, then I moved on to global marketing roles, um, doing content strategy work within marketing functions. So at Cisco for about a year, and then I went to on, on to a supply chain software company and touched everything from um, the HTML and the uh, metadata on the websites to managing translation and localization processes, migrating to um, new CMSs, touching all the page copy. I mean, I did it all back then. Yeah. Um, and then I moved into an agency role, some did some consulting work. Um, at one point, ran global campaigns and field marketing for a division of a CX company, and then um, did some social strategy online community work back at Tech Target again. Um, and then eventually landed at Serious Decisions and Forrester, where I led the B2B content strategy and operations practice. And I feel like my career helped me do that job so well and gave me a very strong opinion on how things needed to work within enterprises and small uh, and mid-market as well because of all the things I had dealt with as a practitioner over the years and seen myself. So that lent itself really well into going in that type of role. And then as you said, now I'm Senior Vice President of Product Marketing and Research at Path Factory, which is exciting as well because I get to take everything I know and now use it to drive um, or at least influence product innovation and talk about uh, do primary research on our own first party data, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some well, point yeah. in the session and, you know, um, do a lot of content as well, which is part mm -hmm. of the product marketer's role too. So it all um, fits in my wheelhouse and I'm excited to be back on the practitioner side. That's cool. Now, um, Path Factory, Aprima, we're partners, love our partnership. Very excited about that. Super, super complimentary. Um, we'll talk about that. I, I do want to talk about this dive into being an analyst and then back with being a vendor. You're my second, uh, second analyst. Uh, oh, yeah, you talked to Nick, right? Nick Barber. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was, he was, I love the getting into like the analyst brain, uh, the analyst mindset, I think is what I, I called it when, when I was talking with Nick. Uh, it's like, pulling from this amalgamation of experiences, having opinions, and then in, and then adding value back into the information. How would you describe the, whenever you had to have your, your analyst a hat on, how did your brain have to operate, so I'll call it uniquely for the role? You know, I think you just have, I mean, I called the analyst role being a professional problem solver. And yeah. I really, like my personality thrives on things like that in terms of even my early stays at Tech Target, my job was basically to take very complex concepts for developers and IT people and turn that into digestible uh, educational information for anyone at any level. And I feel like I was, I do something similar or have done in the analyst role where, you know, every time you get on the phone with somebody and you're going into an advisory call with them, 
you know, you really have to assess what's what's their level of experience, what's the level of maturity of the company they're in, how do I take what I know and the frameworks we've built and the best practices and make sure that they're applicable and actionable in the environment that person lives in with their budget, with their politics, with their mm -hmm. whatever is in play, right? And so I think it's really just being a very good listener, asking a lot of the right questions, but also I drew a lot on my own personal experience all the time, but then also I think the value of the analyst is they're getting this composite view and deep dives under NDA, of course, across hundreds of companies, right? So they're seeing when they're talking to you, they're, they can go back and compare that against a lot of your peers and understand what you, you're doing well and where you maybe need some help. But um, you know, when I brought in more junior people, when I was at Serious Decisions and Forrester, I would say, you're going to get a free MBA, right? Because you're going to shadow us on all these calls and you're just, you're having CMOs walk you through their their strategic plans. You're having their teams walk you through literally the mechanics of a workflow and the data in a spreadsheet. So you're really seeing it all and you can bring that back to everyone you talk to. And it's like, it's not just you, it's you with an army of, you know, 10,000 behind you kind of thing. That's cool. What a way to get a free MBA. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, like research associates, um, you know, the more junior folks, I just, I would have loved to have that kind of exposure in my, you know, mid twenties to that kind of information. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, and um, with all that experience then, you know, you did that for, for several years, actually went through an acquisition. Yep. The idea to go from analyst back into, I'll call it a, a role with, within a technology vendor. Um, I used to work with a, an analyst as well. She was on my team, uh, Anjali Akundi. She worked at yeah. uh, Forrester. She called it the dark, going back to the dark side. <laughs> um, I believe she said that, or I remember that. Um, how is, how does that, um, there's a distinct, there's a distinct advantage, um, I think, spending time as um as an analyst coming back with a technology vendor with all of that like rich body of knowledge to apply strategies uh to apply that free mba onto now one brand um how did that en enrich your experience and like what was some of the decision making to uh to join forces to, to come back to yeah. the practitioner world yeah um well, I mean, I had been there almost seven and a half years, I think about seven and a half years when I left. And as you said, I went through serious decisions and then the acquisition. I was at Forrester for a few years. Um, I mean, I loved being an analyst. I mean, I sometimes am like, oh, I miss, you know, you miss aspects of that. But I get that through the thought leadership and research stuff that I'm doing at Path Factory. So it kind of sat satisfies that and doing the client facing stuff and supporting customers. Um, I, I just felt like I wanted to be able to influence the pro a product itself, you know, and really be able to get more aligned to the product innovation side, the product roadmap. And I did that to some extent within an analyst role in terms of providing feedback or guidance or ideas, but it's not the same as saying, you know, I'm going to be kind of lockstep with this thing through the entire life cycle. Um, and I really just wanted to get back into the practitioner role. This might be kind of controversial to say, but you know, I think if you're an analyst for a really long time, sure, there are benefits. You become so deep in the knowledge of that specific area of coverage that you have. But I consider myself a marketer first. Yeah. And I feel like I've always had sort of digital marketing and content DNA and 
Um, I feel like if I had stayed there too long, that it would have felt like I was a little too far removed from all the stuff that's happening in the market right now. Like, I don't just want to be talking about what other people are doing. I want to be doing it too. Yeah. So that's really what motivated me. I can't say I don't think that maybe someday down the future, you know, wait, what quite a ways out that I couldn't imagine going back to the analyst world. But then I go back again with all of this fresh body of knowledge that's so relevant and would help me be an even better analyst then. That's cool. I like that. Um, going from solving all the other people's problems to now you own the problem. Yeah. That's yeah. A, that, that's a definite, like different adventure to go on. Love that. And so let's talk about a problem, an opportunity, uh, okay. content intelligence. Yes. This is something that you're extremely passionate about. You've got some really cool research. Would love yes. for you to unpack it, but um, let's just, let's define it. Like what is content intelligence? So I define content intelligence. So we call um, Path Factory the content intelligence platform. Mm-hmm. And it, we are sort of trying to create a category in, in a sense, because if you look at like players in the market, they might be talking about content experiences or content engagement. And those things are very important. But to me, it's more the conversation should be around content intelligence, which I define as content AI, automation and analytics. The combined use of content AI, automation and analytics to drive optimized experiences for our audiences and be able to capture data and use that to further inform the AI, the automation, et cetera, and just get more intelligent as we go with what we're able to deliver to um, to our audiences, but also what we're able to gather and improve in terms of our own internal marketing intelligence. So I don't think that you can do marketing today without content intelligence. That's why I'm so passionate about it because, you know, so many people talk about digital transformation and customer experience optimization and opt- accelerating buyer journeys and all these things we all talk about all the time. But the reality is because content fuels so much of that in a digital world, unless you have those capabilities in your eng- in your marketing engine, then you really can't do any of those things. You can't achieve those goals. Yeah. I love that. There's so much value there. There's with what you said, there's strategic value, there's financial value, operational value, um, social value as it relates to content and customer value. There's, there's so many, like I'll call it business cases that you can attach to, uh, yeah. within, uh, within, uh, content intelligence. Um, I like that. It's, it's also, it's a paradigm shift as well, because what you're doing is you're going on a journey to enrich something that's going to make you even better, you know, getting, enriching that data back into your, uh, your AI engine. Cause it, it needs to continually learn and be fed and, 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 uh, and trained, um, I love that. And there's a concept too. You had some recent research that, uh, that came out the rise of the anonymous B2B buyer. I thought that's, it was an awesome read. Everybody needs to check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, Another mindset moving beyond the MQL mindset. I remember I tried to do this several years. Well, I, I did it successfully like two ish years ago, but I had it running in parallel to, thinking um in my thinking differently uh we had been had the mql so ingrained into our um our yesterday's news of funnel performance uh and we just got sort of i'll call it comfortable with that being a metric um 
what does it mean to move beyond the MQL and how can folks um, have a paradigm shift to help with the change in their orgs? I mean, I'm, I'll give my point of view on that. I think this is sort of we as the collective B2B marketing leadership crowd need to figure this out together. Mm-hmm. But um, I did some research using our um, first party uh, signal data from the Path Factory platform this past year. As Ed said, there's a link to the rep- there'll be a link to the report. Um, but basically what I discovered going through the data was that there are um, a significant increase in the number of anonymous buyers or contacts um, engaging on average per account. So when we think about B2B basically being ABM inherently, right, ABM, ABX inherently because B2B buyers buying groups, um, that is a significant data point that we need to kind of pause and look at and say, wait a minute, my average number of known contacts per account, whether it's small, mid, or enterprise, is going to be somewhere from like two to six people or something like that, right? But now my anonymous in the enterprise, for example, on average, there are 79 anonymous people engaging with my account. That is terrifying. Like for us not to know, there's this gigantic portion of folks engaging and we're trying to ask answer questions like, you know, what's actually driving the influence, what's driving them through the journey and for so much of it to be anonymous. Um, yeah. Where do we, you know, where do we go? How do we apply a, um, an assumption on what was the true impact? Yeah. I mean, I think it changes the way we look at um, prioritizing opportunities, prioritizing accounts. Um, I think because people want to do so much more self-service that we, and we started gating less, right, as marketers um, to try to drive more engagement, you know, we're, I think we're influencing the trend, but also buyers are influencing the trend and it's kind of meeting in the middle. But coming back to your MQL comment, you know, the challenge with having a lot of anonymous buyers or anonymous contacts who could be signaling hidden intent because you're not paying attention to the anonymous activity Mm -hmm. is that if you're waiting for someone to hand raise and reach elite scoring threshold as an MQL with enough hand raises, then you're not paying attention to these accounts where there might be a lot of anonymous activity going on and they're kind of all circling around the same solution or the same topic. And that's saying there's some sort of hidden buying group going on here. We need to get some BDRs on this account or whatever the case may be. Um, so I don't think MQLs will go away because we are so dependent on them. And so many of us have uh, adopted a um, lead management waterfall that mm-hmm. uses MQLs and passes to be sales accepted leads. And SK. I mean, we're all in that motion. And even if you talk to like Terry Flaherty or Vicki Brown at Forrester, who are the ones who kind of lead the new revenue waterfall as experts, You know, they're saying the MQL is dead. We all need to move to opportunities. I'm taking a little bit more of a metered approach where I'm saying the MQL isn't dead, but it's like deprecated, right? Like it needs to be thought about inside a larger holistic view of how we think about um, deals, opportunities, revenue, and how we approach driving that. And so I don't think because it's so ingrained in our marketing automation, it's so ingrained in the way that we do work and the way we report, right? Suddenly now we've got to re-educate the whole C-suite that we're not going to do it this way anymore and then operationalize that in our systems. I think it's going to take a couple more years, honestly, before we can completely kind of wean ourselves off of MQLs. But I do think that that's the direction things are heading in. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, 
revisiting gating and form strategies, there's got to be a cheat code in there. If folks want to think about sort of, obviously there's some testing or experimentation that we'd want to, you'd want to run. Uh, are there any cheat codes in that? Um, um, I mean, so cheat. Yeah. I mean, so path factory customers can at least see where um, the anonymous and the known traffic is happening and on what types of content and topics or where uh, anonymous visitors are most likely to convert to known. So that can start informing your content strategy. So I think the cheat code at first is just to start actually looking at anonymous traffic and where it's coming from and how it converts and what topics it triangulates around just to start getting more educated and introducing that anonymous piece. I think um, Carrie Cunningham at Sixth Sense, who's also a former Forrester colleague of mine, um, did a B2B marketing survey last year. And all the marketers who responded, only 26% of them said that they are paying attention and doing something about on anonymous traffic today. They're still very much in that MQL mindset. That was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the inflection point where we're at, where that that percentage needs to go up drastically over, say, the next year or two. Absolutely. So much untapped value, insight, and action on anonymous traffic. And there's this concept in here, the, the four R's. Yeah. I'd like to talk through. I think there's definitely some cheat codes to unpack. Right audience, right content, right place, right time. How should we be thinking about that and applying that to to marketing? So this is a model I developed while I was at Forrester and you kind of picture the top row saying right audience, right content, right place, right time. I mean, that's what we've been talking about. That's what buyer experience and CX optimization is, right? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of mandate or the promise we're all trying to deliver on as marketers and as external facing like CX teams overall. Um, Underneath that, I would I had planning, production, promotion, performance. So for right audience, you have to have the right planning. You need to know who your who the audience is that you're going after. You need to understand your go-to-market strategy, your personas, etc., their journeys. Um, you need production for right content. What kind of content are we creating? Is it the right content based on what we we've decided in the planning phase? Promotion, you know, how are we activating our content? This is where Path Factory obviously shines with personalization for anonymous and known and, you know, really um, dynamic digital experiences using AI and automation. And then the final one for um, right time, that's where the analytics come in, right? The AI and the taxonomy and um, your data and how all of that basically feeds when content will be delivered and an experience and how and to whom and usually leveraging first party engagement data, your zero party data, what you have in your database, mm. as well as third party intent data that you're probably getting from a provider as well. And looking at that all holistically and then saying, here's the experience that needs to be delivered at this time based on what we know. So I don't think you can get to the four R's. The four R's are the goal. The four P's are our internal processor supply mm-hmm. chain to achieve that goal. And then I think about um, assets, AI, automation, and, and analytics as the four A's that Ooh. help get all of that done. I love so, that. Yeah, Those are three pretty stellar cheat codes we're going to have to um, highlight uh, going forward. Um, now, let's talk about content AI. Mm-hmm. Um, generative AI versus content AI. How do you differentiate the two or how should folks think about them together? 
So, I mean, I'm excited about generative AI, right? Because it's brought so much attention to content AI overall. Um, I think generative AI is going to just be like explosively disruptive over the next couple of years. But I, I kind of caution a little bit with it because we don't have any policies or guardrails in a lot of organizations yet. Organizations are just catching up. Wait a minute, what's going on with this? What, yeah. what does it mean for me and my teams and our goals and how we do our work? And I do think it has a huge impact on the future of work. And we'll see that play out over the next couple of years. But there's a lot we still don't know. I think we need to be careful and we need to be advising employees that they shouldn't be off throwing proprietary data into a public um, LLM. And, um, you know, that can create regula uh, regula regulatory risk. It can um, put our IP at risk, et cetera. So I just caution, I think we should be playing with generative AI. I think we should be looking at how we can innovate and bring it into our own products. I mean, we're certainly doing that at Path Factory, and I know a Primo is as well. Mm -hmm. But I would also say... There's been a lot of content AI on the market for a long time and a lot of really great content AI vendors that kind of fit across those four P's, right? Planning, production, promotion, performance management. I know you guys have great auto tagging. We have some of our own auto tagging capabilities as well. Um, we've been using AI for website personalization, for AI and ML driven campaign experiences and content recommendations within those content experiences or campaign experiences. And then we also have the AI auto tagging and content ops where we'll like kind of scan for diagnostic related stuff and tag for topics and for asset type, et cetera, and let you just kind of do kind of quick content audit and analysis. Um, so sorry, I'll, I'll say one more thing, then I'll pause with that. So I think there's been a lot of AI in content for a long time yes. and that it's not being used enough or is well understood enough by marketers today. This is a wake up call with generative AI to say like, you need to get a handle on how you're using content AI automation and analytics in your ecosystem now and build your roadmap for that. And of course, generative AI will be one piece of that, but I think you need to be looking more broadly and holistically than just generative AI. Absolutely. I love what you said there. And you also exposed that AI has been around for a long time. Um, a Primo just, we released some, we did some research on, um, apps that are used and this sort of like quest for simplicity within our lives and how apps with AI can help help that. And what we found out was there was such a small percent of folks that actually knew some of those applications they used to simplify their life actually had AI in them. So there's almost like, it, it begs the question, like what is good AI, is it, you don't even know it's there. It's sort of benefiting you in the background. Um, how would, when you think about like good artificial intelligence, that's aiding the human verse, um, verse, I'll call it, um, maybe some like there's friction and, or the human, the cognitive load or burden on the human is, is greater with leveraging a certain type of AI. What, what does, what does good AI look feel like? I mean, I think it depends on the use case, but to your point, I would agree that to some, some extent you want it going on in the background, right? The whole point is it is it's going to create scale and efficiency for you, but it's also, as it's doing that, going to optimize the experiences that you're creating using it, um, whether that's internal processes or it's external, you know, uh, customer experiences. 
But I do think they're like with generative AI, right? You're, you're engaging with it. You're putting in prompts. You're trying to figure out how you can use it. You're getting ideas. Um, so I think it's both in terms of being sort of um, passive versus active in terms of how you engage with it. Um, I'm really excited to see th where things go. But I think the purpose of AI is to free us up to do things that only humans can do. You know, the more the storytelling, the creative, the, I don't think that AI is going to be taking that away from us anytime soon. I think we should be looking at it, what, areas where it can be doing things that we as humans don't do well at scale. Right. So like we drive personalization of path factory experiences and we can swap out logos or, or redirect them to a different personal, you know, customized experience that's vertical based or whatever. All of that's driven through the data on the back end. We're not you know, having to manually program all of those things. So I, and I also see it, you know, I used to work in translation and localization technology as well. And we were using um, machine learning and AI for machine translation mm -hmm. um, years and years and years ago. Right. And now it's ubiquitous everywhere. I can even translate automatically within text messages on my phone. Right. So I, I'm excited to see where AI goes um, and I don't even think any of us have the answer, all the answers yet into where it will go actually looks like. Yeah. Now there's a quote, content AI and B2B tech stacks is no longer optional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Explain that a little more. That is, that is very true. You just can't avoid it. I mean, it's, we're just at this inflection point in our kind of technology maturity curve around content AI where it's all the attention it's getting right now because of generative is just going to kind of put a magnifying glass on the whole content engine, which I am all for. I'm so excited about that. When all, when chat GPT buzz started busting out, I was like, yes, I've been waiting for this moment in the market where people, there will be enough buzz that people will start asking the right questions and it will create the stage to really talk about this at a broader and deeper level where we really need to be looking across our entire revenue tech stack and ultimately the entire enterprise ecosystem, frankly, and identifying where, again, I don't see AI in a vacuum. To me, that's why I talk about content intelligence as AI automation and analytics, because they, they're sort of virtuously intertwined, right? The AI drives automation, um, the analytics drive the automation and the AI, the AI, the analytics teaches the AI, the AI teaches the analytics. Like it just kind of becomes a virtuous circle. Um, I kind of lost track of your original question. What was the question? I'm so like, oh, it's you, into you, what I'm saying. Yeah. B2B tech stacks. We can't, uh, oh, AI yeah, is not. Just, yeah. It's no longer optional because of everything we said at the beginning, buyer and customer experiences and even internal experiences are highly dependent on content that can no, when I was at Forrester and we would do state of B2B content studies and we'd be looking at the maturity of B2B organizations, it was always a little bit sad to me how little investment went into content tech versus other things. It always seemed like the content engine got pushed down the priority list when there were lots of different departments and lots of different tech spend asks going on in the organization. And so the maps and the intent providers and, and just seemed like everybody else was getting the money. And so I would see that the content tech and the data and measurement was very immature for the majority of organizations and still a lot of findability issues, not being able to get the content activated with the right audience the way we wanted, et cetera, et cetera. So 
Um, it's been a problem for a long time, but we're at an inflection point, like I said, where there's going to be so much attention and investment on content AI that if you're not one of the marketing organizations that's figuring out how you're going to use it to drive growth, you're going to be behind the technology adoption curve. And it's just going to be a competitive disadvantage at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a superpower cheat code uh, for sure. We need to think about how we implement policies, uh, the culture of it in our businesses, um, security and content governance. What are some th things we'll call them cheat codes that organizations need to be thinking about as well as it relates to, so I'll call it some of the risks that are involved now with, um, with all, with generative AI, with content intelligence, just AI in general. What are some of the associated things that orgs need to get, wrap their arms around and, um, have some guardrails? Put up for? I think it comes back to things I've been talking about before even the content AI conversation exploded, which is I've always been an evangelist for like what a decade now for content operations as an actual discipline and function within organizations. And I see a lot of it, you know, it might be in a centralized content team, it might be in a marketing ops function, it might be its own, it might be in a sales enablement function, it might be its own discrete function. But whatever it is, we need people who are responsible for keeping an eye on the content engine, and making sure it's working and looking at tagging and looking at our metadata and looking at policies and governance. And if we're getting repository proliferation and content management chaos happening and things like that, because um, I still see that being a major issue, even when we bring on new customers, right? I mean, and we say, you know, what tags do you want to use? What do you want to be able to report based on from a uh, metadata perspective? They don't know a lot of the times because they haven't put in the work, right? And you, so much of what we do digitally is driven by um, backend code like metadata, right? As well as kind of what's on the page itself, like all of that's being analyzed. And if we're not looking at that ourselves and auditing it and understanding it, um, then we really can't do what we're trying to do as marketers. So I feel like we need content ops and now their role, and I'm sure it's going to be cross-functional, right, with IT and InfoSec and all kinds of other stakeholders, but we have to figure out what the guardrails are. I mean, when I, w when I was at Forrester, I used to talk to people all the time about rogue sales content, yeah. right? You know, they would just go <laughs> and write whatever they want or create whatever slides mm -hmm. they want. And now, we, now they can go use AI to do that too. And like I said, what if they're putting a proprietary information from your own company or even worse from one of your customers or potential customers and putting it that out in the public domain? Suddenly that's a lawsuit, you know, who knows? So we do have to get our arms around it. I kind of think about social back in the day when social media marketing exploded and suddenly yeah. everyone was being encouraged to post and we had to develop social ops and teach mm -hmm. our employees what was okay and what wasn't. And I think we have to do the same thing for AI. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Now, um, if you've got a, I know you've got a crystal ball over there. If you want to like set it up on the table and kind of let's look into the future. And, and, um, and actually I do have <laughs> magic eight ball. <laughs> perfect. perfect. We did not script that folks. Um, yeah. So the future, like the future of B2B content intelligence what is on the horizon? What's next? Where is this all going from here? I mean, I think it's just going for, it's an, again, a scale thing and a level of sophistication where it's just going to sort of 
exponentially better as we go now. You know, things start to build on themselves when you reach a certain technology maturity point. So I'm excited to see where it goes. I mean, a lot of it is going to be dependent on more ubiquitous adoption too, which I, I also think is inevitable um, so that we can actually see also and learn from our customers and how they're applying this stuff and what's really working for them. But for me, the focus lately has been on how do we use this to drive advanced ABM, ABX? Because when you look at a tr traditional workflow around ABM, you know, we're developing our account strategy and then we're building our segments and we're usually using our database and some intent provider for that or whatever and our map data. And then we're building all these experiences and then we're then it's the MQL, right? We're scoring, yeah. we're passing to sales, like that traditional model. That's missing all of the first party data that you get from content intelligence. So I want to see when you're doing account segmentation, you're introducing in the first party data that you get from a content intelligence platform. When you're building the experiences, I want to see people using Path Factory to build these easy to build ABM experiences at scale. You know your segments, you can boom, boom, boom. I just created a hundred experiences and what would have typically without that taken me, um, I could have built 10, you know what I mean? Like 10 X your efficiency. Um, then lead scoring, we're not just getting, Hey, they clicked, they downloaded, they filled out a form, but how long did they scroll? How much time did they spend on what was the content about and passing that into our map? So we have mm. not just, Oh, we got a conversion, but was it a meaningful conversion? Right? Like if they downloaded something and then spent two seconds looking at it, it, somehow the content didn't meet their expectations, right? And then carrying that all the way through to passing that information to sales. What I really love about content intelligence is surfing, surfacing the same analytics around engagement data to both marketing and sales. So they're looking at an account and saying, seeing here's all the anonymous and known people who've engaged, how what they've engaged with, for how long, on what topics, and they're looking at the same data and they're actioning from that. So again, like I was saying in the content intelligence report and you were referencing earlier, you know, if I'm a BDR and I have a hundred target accounts and these 10 are just like going off the charts with anonymous activity, I'm sure as heck gonna go focus on those first in terms of proactive outreach than these 90 that are showing no buying signal activity at all. So I just think that um, we're at this pivot point where ABM needs to be taken to the next level and it can only be done using something like I just described. Yeah, I love that. I like what you also talked about in there, which is the, the data set with sales and marketing looking at the same data set. It's almost like a, a unifying factor or event to bring those organizations together uh, to be more effective. Um, and that's, that's always been you know, organizational challenges as well. Um, and then also there's like, uh, on the other side of the glass, so to speak, there's like that, that confusion factor of marketing saying one thing, sales is saying another, yeah. Um, so much value there to keep the, the, those organizations on the same page. Um, yeah, data is, um, uh, is absolutely important. Um, content intelligence is, um, is there's a whole, there's a whole host of cheat codes in there. Um. Love that you talked about those. Um, if there's one thing that, you know, if, if you could bring one one last cheat code to the talk uh, today, what would, that, what would that be? What was that? I said pressure's on. I'm just kidding. Pressure's on. What's the one cheat, one lasting cheat code right now that you'd want to leave with folks uh, to think about after, you know, having you know, talked through this? 
and you know the research that you have um what's the cheat code that they need to bring back to their business on monday i mean i don't know if it's i'm going to say a couple things one i think overall you need to take a look at your overall content engine holistically and really understand where your strengths and weaknesses are. And when I was at Forrester, I built a content transformation roadmap framework to talk about this. So again, when you're looking across those four P's of the content supply chain, planning, production, promotion, and performance management, where do you have strengths and where do you have weaknesses? This is a lot because I'm going to say add another layer onto those uh, four P's, Mm -hmm. which is looking at strategy, people, process, tech, and data and really understanding across those four dimensions and those five um, factors, you know, where are you today from a maturity perspective? And then really building a roadmap for content transformation. Will it probably change? Which will different milestones move up or down? Will you have to get different stakeholders? Sure. This nothing with the word transfer in the word transformation in it is going to be easy or fast, but we're way overdue in a majority of organizations to embrace this idea of content engine transformation and do something really meaningful about it. Um, and I think it is a C-level um, challenge and opportunity that really needs to be elevated. So if you're not the C-level, I would be bringing that to your executive leadership's attention and saying, this is our moment where we need to invest um, and innovate. And then I would also say at a more tactical level, if you have not done a content audit and inventory and gap analysis of your your content and your assets and how they support different segments or personas or what you have for whatever your goals are, the use cases, you need to do that. You need to keep up with it. I, I sound so boring saying that because we've been talking about those things, you know, content audits and inventories for decades but it is still foundational and I still run into too many people who don't know what content they have or where it is or what it's doing. We need that constant reminder. It's really easy to get distracted and going off with shiny objects, generative AI or you know the latest, um, whatever that is, but those foundational things yes. that, uh, that, that keep us working well. Oh my gosh. I used to say, I used to describe it like, Um, you know, you're out there building a house and you're putting in stained glass windows and all this fancy trim and everything, and you have cracks in the foundation of the house, right? So you do have to make sure your basics are well tended to before you can start focusing on some of the stuff that might be a little bit more shiny object based on where you are maturity wise. Absolutely. Now, Christina, I love that you're also a content creator. You have a podcast. Yes. Um, What, Give it a little plug here for folks. Okay. That want to keep- so it's not just mine. I mean, it's Path Factory, but we do a regular series called B2B Visionaries. Um, we actually had Ed on recently. We have a lot of different uh, marketing, sales, product leaders, just um, thought leaders in their spaces who join that show. Um, I would recommend you check it out if you haven't, especially one that I did with Ed, because we touched on a lot of the similar things, but it's complimentary, not redundant to this conversation. So, um, yeah, thanks for the plug. And I really want you guys to check out the content intelligence report as well and reach out to me. I'd love to hear feedback. Awesome. We'll definitely put all the hyperlinks and all that good stuff in the show notes. Cool, Christine, thank you for sharing your origin story. Um, thank you for sharing your, um, your passion for content intelligence, dropping all the cheat codes today. And, um, yeah, you've, you've made us all, I'll solve better for having done so. So thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. This was fun.
Thank you everyone for joining us today for another episode of Marketing Cheat Codes. I want to thank our guests for their time and everyone out there in a primo land for listening. This episode was written, mixed, and produced by Glenn McManus. Our associate producer is Noah Horberg. Our production coordinator is Izzy Herbst. And our creative director is Sonny Okamoto. Our series is hosted by Ed Brielt. And I'm your co-host, Sam Chapman. If you like what you're hearing, please rate us or review us everywhere you listen to podcasts and be sure to keep the conversation going by following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you have a topic you'd like to hear us discuss or want to be a guest, head on over to the URL in the episode description and drop us a line. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.